Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, March 29th, 2021. I am John Bothorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And wait, can I just say I should have to wear a Phil Spector wig as penance because I completely bungled our podcast on Friday. And I'm sorry for the listeners who didn't who had to go back and find the fixed one. So we're going to do better this week. <laughs> we oh, miss Noah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, Noah Rothman is is off this week. You should not have to wear a Phil Spector wig. Uh, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't kill anybody. <laughs> so, you know, I just want to make that clear. As, as, as a person who didn't kill anybody, you are therefore not comparable to Phil Phil Spector, who actually overproduced things. Yes, that's so true. Let, that let, let's true. not forget. Um, there is no there is no wall of sound. I am sitting in a basement in Chicago, uh, where I think the sound quality isn't quite as good as it is where where we do it in uh, where I do it in New York. So um, I apologize uh, for that. I hope. Uh, those of our listeners who who had uh, who did satyrs uh, had profitable profitable ones. I did have a funny experience. I'd just like to share with you, which is that um, we uh, my family downloaded um, a, uh, a, sh- a shared Haggadah because we had people who were zooming in, and so everyone should have the same one and a uh, a very nice uh, synagogue in Encino, California. Um, uh, Valley uh, Valley Shalom, I believe it's called, had produced this Zoom Haggadah that we used. And uh, my brother-in-law, who was running the Seder, called on me at one point to read a passage, uh, sort of a, an extrapolation passage about what the Exodus might mean to you today. And as I'm reading it, I'm going along reading it. And then at the end, it indicates that the passage was written by Michael Walzer. Uh, Michael Walzer is a professor at Princeton who is also one of the editors of Dissent, which uh, people may know is the kind of socialist version of commentary, let's just say. And of course, the uh, a uh, immortalized by the now disgraced Woody Allen and Annie Hall, who said uh, he had thought that Dissent and commentary had merged and become dysentery. Anyway, I, I, I considered it a very... Um, uh, uh, a very pointed fact that I was I was compelled to read. I, I hope that at his Zoom Seder, Michael Walzer was forced to read a passage by me. But uh, somehow I doubt that that happened. If you if you get my if you get my meaning, anyhow, um, uh, Walzer, unlike me, Walzer has did write a book on the sort of political meaning and ramifications of the Exodus. So he he at least has has that going for him. Um, but. Uh, but such is life as a politically conservative Jew uh, in, in America. Um, so uh, today the trial of, of, of police officer Derek Chauvin gets underway in Minneapolis for the, um, for the murder of uh, the accused of murder, murdering George Floyd. And um, we have been, lulled into a false sense of uh, security about how the events of 2020, uh, the summer of 2020, uh, were uh, specific maybe to 2020 and all these changes have gone on. Also, so much revolution everywhere and the way that people are forced to confront their privilege and white supremacy and all of that. And obviously that's a real, we're really trying to, we're, we're trying to grapple with our 
our traditions and the things that led to an event like this and all of that. And, uh, uh, presidency has changed and we now have a liberal presidency and everything. And, uh, I think we're, we're all expecting, uh, we, the three of us are all expecting that, um, uh, whatever, whatever alterations may have uh, taken place in response to the, uh, to the killing of George Floyd, um, they will be as nothing, uh, if, if the verdict doesn't go the way the mob wants it to. And indeed, I think if events during the trial, as they are reported on during the trial, do not go the way that, uh, people, uh, want them to. And so I'm a little, I'm more than a little apprehensive that we're about to see a flare up of the civil disorder of 2020 and 2021. Abe. Yeah, because this is also will be just by virtue of, of what the trial is, this will be the first unapologetic airing of a defense of Chauvin's actions. Right. Um, and that in and of itself is going to stir up all sorts of passions. Um, the, the defense is expected to claim, um, that, um, George Floyd died as a result of having, uh, some sort of mix of fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system. Um, that is, that is certainly going to, um, inflame things. I, I suppose there's a chance that because Donald Trump is no longer president and Joe Biden is that the the media may be somewhat invested in um, framing the events of the trial uh, as taking place somehow uh, uh, against a a more just national backdrop than than if uh, uh, Trump were uh, still in office. they're, they're, They're less incentivized to paint uh, a portrait of a uh, completely out of control and unjust racist America. But I don't, I don't know that that would really have an, enough of an effect to, to quell anything that could arise. Well, it's certainly going to put, I mean, in one sense, it's going to expose one of the major uh, fissure points on the left that was hidden by Trump being in office, which is that the activist progressive left doesn't trust the judicial system. And if they're, and, and if they don't get the verdict they want, they're going to attack that and they don't care if Biden is the president anymore. Right. And you've seen this, you know, he and, and Kamala Harris, uh, their rhetoric during the summer was, was completely on one side. You know, the minute there was any sort of, you know, the attack on the Capitol, it was about white supremacy. So that they are saying all the right words, but if events don't play out the way the activists want, we've seen this even with legislation, the breathe act is being pursued by, by activists on Capitol Hill. And they, they were making actual threats about violence if this legislation didn't get passed. It's like, well, the summer's coming, you know, people are really angry still. And there's all kinds of signaling going on on the left. And Biden's vulnerable in some sense if there's a lot of uh, chaos and disorder that comes as a result of this verdict. And we and there's also been a weird kind of media approach to this that hasn't wanted to be honest about what's already happening in Minneapolis, like the weird autonomous zone in George Floyd Plaza that's been constructed that has signs that say cops are not welcome, where a 30-year-old volunteer has already been shot and killed, where people who have businesses in that area don't have no customers and boarded up windows. And, you know, this is all happening in, in Biden's America, as everybody likes to say about Trump's well, America. It's not just, it's also not just Biden's America. I mean, this is a progressive city with a progressive yes. city council that did cut funding to the police and has this, you know, um, 
child boy mayor uh, who walks around in a t-shirt uh, whining that people don't think that he's uh, as progressive as 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 he really is but that you know you can't really be a mayor and 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 want the police and entirely defunded so uh, this is a city in which there is no uh, political counterweight to the there wasn't any political counterweight to the uh, progressive agenda before the killing of George Floyd. And uh, there was this sort of mad onrush to dismantle structures of the police department and all of that. And, and, and the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating as, as I think we keep saying, one of the interesting things about these uh, criminal alterations in criminal justice policy that have started really in the last years of the 20, 20 teens, uh, is that uh, their effects are astonishingly immediate? You know, it's like if you make it clear that you are pull- that police are pulling back, the rise in disorder from the places where the police are pulling back is instant, almost instantaneous everywhere that it happens. And I've mentioned this before, but you know, in New York City, when they changed the bail law and they changed the sort of the charging laws and the system of charging uh, people with, with 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 crimes and all of that. Um, the uh, New York in 2020 saw a 20% increase in violent crime and an 11% increase in shooting deaths. Now, from a very low base, right? Because the city had had uh, been extraordinarily pacific for the last. Uh, 30 years. Um, but of course, the question is whether uh, that's a, a one-off moment or whether we are ha- entering into a new period of of, of high crime, uh, distrust of the police, not only by, by minority populations, but by the political establishment. And, uh, and the story in Minneapolis, obviously, is that there were hundreds of retirements in the Minneapolis police department, people saying, I am, I want no part of this. I'm not going to be a police officer in this atmosphere where police officers are now have, you know, uh, are now considered evil. Uh, I, I don't need this in my life. And, and so the department was not only handcuffed in its own way, but it was depopulated by the response to, to, to George Floyd. Meanwhile, in New York city, for example, there is a mayoral race going on. There are uh, do- dozens of candidates, and there are two candidates in the race, two out of, I don't know, 15 or something like that, who have anything to say on the subject of what they might do to lower uh, the incidence of violent crime and the rise in, in social disorder. That's Andrew Yang and Ray McGuire. Everybody else is talking as though the main issue in the city is, you know, green this or blah, blah, or, you know, we need... I mean, it, it, there's a kind of um, cloud cuckoo land effect where they are talking about everything other than the issues that are actually bedeviling the city, which aren't just the coronavirus, but the rise in decay and disorder that is visible to everybody's eyes. And you are now not allowed to talk about this in progressive circles at all. Well, that's that's what's uh, real quick. What, what's interesting about that is that what we've seen during the Trump years, it was very easy for them instead of getting into granular detail about rising crime rates, particularly violent crime and gun violence. It was easier to say, well, everything's the result of you know Trump's rhetoric and and systemic uh, white you know supremacy. 
but they can't that and they're still doing that that's still sort of the mantra anytime there's like anyone talks about crime the progressive left goes well if we could only solve this problem of systemic racism and white supremacy but people aren't buying it and the people who are buying it are the people who the minorities who live in those communities and are being preyed upon and who who are literally experiencing the violence on the streets every day they're the ones who i think are going to be pressing back on this uh with alacrity and some already are in and in parts of New York, they're doing this and in DC too. That's good. They need to be putting pressure on their elected officials and saying, how are you practically going to stop this? Like how, how are you going to change this? Um, uh, two points. One is that not only are you not allowed to talk about the actual um, problems that are now bedeviling the cities, but among those um, on the left who were in favor of defunding the police and reform, their claim now is nothing's been defunded. You, er- everyone got upset about about nothing. There was a lot of rhetoric, but nothing's been defunded, you know, because they they use a way to look at some of the numbers and and say, oh well, you know, yeah, some things were reallocated and and that's but but the 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 net effect is nonetheless exactly John as you described that um, the, these 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 police forces have been hobbled. Um, and just quickly, my, my my other point is that in terms of uh, safety in cities, this is happening uh, simultaneous to. Um, the continued draining of the these cities' populations, at least in certain uh, business centers and 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 wherever else, where people are not returning to the uh, office spaces um, at at a rate that represents where we were pre-pandemic. So the, the cities are significantly emptied out in large swaths, which leave only um, more dangerous elements out there. Right. I wanted to read a couple of quotes from a New York Times story this morning. Uh, Ten months after George Floyd's death, Minneapolis residents are at war over policing. So um, there is this area called George Floyd Square that has essentially become an autonomous zone. Christine alluded uh, alluded to that fact. Um, and uh, Minneapolis, by the way, saw a 25% increase in homicides, rapes, robberies, and assaults after, uh, after the unrest began in June. Um, uh, home in on the four neighborhoods surrounding George Floyd Square, the name given to the corner where Mr. Floyd died, according to the New York Times, and the story is far bleaker and deadlier in those areas, Powderhorn Park, Central Bryan, and Bancroft. Violent crime shot up by 66% last year, and this year so far, Little has changed. The area has become something of an autonomous zone with barriers and signs calling it the free state of George Floyd. The police have stayed away for almost a year to avoid inflaming tensions. Now, um, supporters of defunding the police have applauded steps to redirect $8 million from the police department's budget, which now sits at about $170 million. Some of these funds have gone to the Office of Violence Prevention. Its director is Sasha Cotton. Okay, And here's what Sasha Cotton says. We're under a microscope and at an epicenter that no city wants to be in. I think that from these challenges, there is real growth happening and that we will come out of it better on the other side. But it's sort of like that awkward teenage space that people have to go through. So the awkward teenage space is an increase in crime of 66% that is apparently far worse in, in this specific area uh, where where George Floyd was killed. 
And Pastor Curtis Farrar, who leads Worldwide Outreach for Christ at George Floyd Square, said gang violence had long been a problem in the area, but it had been improving before Mr. Floyd was killed and the police pulled back. Now the sounds of gunshots are constant, and recently workers he has hired to change his church's windows have refused to come to the area because they feel it is too dangerous. A civil rights lawyer named... uh, Nikima Levy Armstrong said that while she supports some resources going to social services, the defund movement is nothing more than, quote, catchy slogans and catchphrases. She said that last summer she warned Jeremiah Ellison, a city council member supporting efforts to dismantle the police department, that it would lead to only chaos. You're going to turn Minneapolis into the wild, wild west, she recalled telling him. But Mr. Ellison said the uptick in violence in the city began long before any money was redirected from the police. And he credited council members for investing in alternatives to policing. To do what we've done in 10 months, he said, as far as city government is concerned, that's kind of moving at light speed. So um, this, of course, is a uh, an article that uh, one would assume its authors uh, reported out. I don't think they necessarily want the takeaway to be the takeaway that any rational person reading this article would take, which is that uh, these people are crazy and that, you know, uh, Nakima Levy Armstrong is sane, says, you know, you're turning this place into the wild, wild west. And Jeremiah Ellison says, yeehaw, it's the wild, wild west. <laughs> I mean, no, he congratulates them. He literally congratulates himself and other elected officials for the fact that the body count is now higher in his city. That's that's what he just did. That's appalling. It's appalling. And 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 as I say, like, based on the New York City mayoral race, there's a kind of implicit understanding that... Um, that the, the 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 goal here is to defang the forces of order because the forces of order uh, somehow create the conditions under which uh, oppression exists. And uh, the interesting thing is that this is this represents a kind of stark nihilistic trade-off that one that one more readily associates with villains in you know, in like uh, conspiracy crime movies who say things like, you know, oh, you don't like our fascist state? Well, what do you want? Just marauding in the streets? Like, that's what, you know, that's what the sort of the villains say. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, grow up. This is, we're 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 living here in the real world. And, you know, sometimes you got to shoot people in order to make your point and all of that. And, and, And effectively, that is the defense of these, policies. And if it's not, it's what Christine, you said, which is that the other thing that people say is it's not happening yet. It's not really happening anyway. So you don't really have the right to complain that things are all that disordered because we haven't even gotten started. Well, there in the Telegraph story, which I recommend to readers, it might be behind a paywall, but uh, one of the things they report on is, is the sort of overall tone and mood that the people in the autonomous zone are trying to set. So besides refusing to allow any cops and they have a person in a booth monitoring to make sure law enforcement doesn't get in, they have signs saying that anyone who comes in should approach the area as if they are visiting Auschwitz, 
with that kind of, you know, honor, you know, that, that kind of respect for the kind, the area that they are entering. They have all kinds of uh, statements about how, you know, it's, it's uh, local leaders are like, well, everybody's complaining about the violence now, but it's always been violent. We were underserved for so long. And so now at least we're going to try this more radical way of doing things that that's got to be better. And there is something to be said for people who have been in these neighborhoods and facing crime, you know, decade after decade and city officials did nothing for them to say, well, you're noticing us now only because this horrible, you know, death occurred, but really this has been a problem all along. But then to pivot from that to embracing defund the police and, you know, embracing these, uh, this obviously rising violent crime rate doesn't make sense, but it does make ideological sense. And I think that's where the consistency for a lot of these sort of community activist types is. It's an, there's an ideologically consistent position that nevertheless must overlook the, the violent facts on the ground. Look, the, the, the most horrible aspect of this, and it is horrible beyond belief, is just as I, you know, analogize this to, you know, the villain speaking the deep nihilistic truth in a movie, that, um, that what you, what you have here is progressive forces uh, who are nominally and, or, you know, even in terms of their funding and their structure and everything like that, uh, essentially uh, demanding a preferential option, f- what what used to be called the preferential option for the poor in Catholic social justice circles, uh, particularly in, in in the Southern Hemisphere. But but the idea that um, you know all social policy needs to be redirected to ensure that uh, that uh, people who have been pro- previously oppressed get sort of like the lion's share of the benefits of society and all of that. And that um, in this uh, preferential option, you are somehow um, uh, accepting the idea that this population is uniquely and innately and uh, determinedly more committed to decay, disorder, and violence and prefers that to uh, the just standard issue order, like I want to be able to, you know, go out of out outside of my building and walk down the street safe and not get robbed, mugged, or beaten. Um, that somehow there is something unique about a, a culture of violence amid poverty that is more authentic and is better or is more moral than than a, than a world in which um, even the least of us is protected from the predators who seek to destroy uh, the, the means and ways of ordinary life uh, that, you know, immiserate because those of us who have enough resources can barricade ourselves in various ways. We can never go out on the street. We can, you know, we can take taxis everywhere. We can, you know, we can order uh, groceries into our house. We can do whatever we can do as was always the case, even in the, terrible crime spurt of the 60s to the 90s to create gated communities. But that that is not true of people who have limited resources, who are more in need of the protections of police and public safety officials than are the well-to-do. And yet that is precisely what all of these policies are designed to prevent, which is that they are, they're designed to contribute to their immiseration as some kind of an ideological gesture to the notion that 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 our society is systematically unjust, um, it is a it is a it's a horror, and I you know and and it's it's so obvious on its face that you really wonder what it is. If you want to say it's terrible 
that certain police officers do terrible things and that a lot has happened in this country in, uh, you know, unanticipatable ways or sort of, you know, in, um, you know, unintended consequential ways to make it too easy on them when they, when bad things happen, certain types of union contracts, certain kinds of state laws, particularly New York state, again, that make it that, that, that allow them to be silent and not to share information and do all kinds of stuff like that. If you want to say that there is a problem with bad apples that needs to be resolved, that's something that everybody, I think, has come to the point that we all agree on. But that's not what that's not what's being argued here. What's being argued here is that society itself is systematically oppressing people and that we should therefore accept the Wild West rather than, you know, the civilization that can be brought to bear. It's like saying, you know, there's a problem with American health care, so let's get rid of the doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> or there's a problem with American health care, so let's get rid of the profit motive. Yeah. Which right. of course is which is what which right. is what's said. Yes. Yeah, the profit motive is terrible. So don't don't incentivize anybody in healthcare to do things that will make people healthier or to, you know, or to help or help cure diseases or something, right? That's the that is that is the world in 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 which we live, which we talked about last week, right? That uh, that uh, you know here we have this uh, magnificent achievement in 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 the production of the vaccines that is an implicit rebuke to the whole notion that what we need to do is nationalize uh, you know these private industries and put them under 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 government control. What the government did was say, oh, "We guarantee we're going to buy this stuff from you. Now you go off and do whatever magic it is that you do with this profit incentive." And lo and behold, in nine months, we had we have now you know at least four vaccines, uh, with more maybe coming. So um, I think that's a you know, but yeah, but but uh, the, these ideas are so semi-religious in nature that they resist all rational uh, disputation or or, or ra- the rational disproof by actual evidence of your own eyes and your own senses. Let me talk about evidence of your back, evidence of your, of your body's, uh, uh, health, uh, as we, as we go through this, uh, world in which we are staying at home, a lot of us, instead of going to offices and working and then stretching ourselves as we walk around and do all that. In recent decades, there's been a growing appreciation of having the right, uh, bed uh, for those eight hours we spend each day. But for many Americans, there's another place we find ourselves in for hours daily, the office chair. And just like that old spring mattress won't cut it from 10 to 6, a shaky old chair won't cut it from 9 to 5. And if you're not in an X chair, then the one you got needs to go. I just got myself an X chair. I'm about to explain to you why this chair is some magnificent marvel of human uh, achievement. Uh, Its secret is not only its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, but now thanks to their new XHMT technology, I can also get heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting at my desk. The XHMT delivers heat and massage technology right to my core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from home a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. So instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, 
This is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS, X-W-H-E-E-L-S, for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. All right, so that was depressing. So now what we can, what can we do to depress people uh, some more? Christine, um, what do you have? What do you have in the oh, Abe? What do you have in the depressing? Actually, Abe, Abe has a has. A, I think he's probably still. He has now. We can go move on from depressed to like alarmist concern about. I hope you're going to bring up the vaccine passports because that's like yeah. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> you know, there's there's um, there's now uh, there are stories about um, the creation of a national vaccine uh, passport that would um, allow uh, those who have who can show proof of vaccination to engage in um, uh, commerce and um, uh, sort of like, you know, attend public venues and whatnot. Uh, New York's already got some sort of digital uh, version of this rolling out. Um, So, you know, here we are. This was the this was the concern made. It's a shame that Noah's off during the week of this uh, uh, this breaking story, because this was his. Um, concerned way back when of a kind of two-tiered system where whereby uh, people who had got the vaccine will have um, rights that uh, those who cannot prove that they've gotten the vaccine or haven't gotten the vaccine um, will not have. Uh, I'll, I'll just say f- for my part, I'm not outraged by the idea. Um, in fact, I think the the conceptually it's 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 there there are things commendable about it. Um, however, I do suspect that given the state of everything from uh, digital platforms to the maintenance of a digital database to our politics to um, the um, um, ever unreliable uh, public health uh, bureaucracy, um, I'm, I'm almost certain that its implementation is, is going to be highly, highly problematic. Well, and the fact that the one question that should be asked before any of these things are even discussed publicly is what does this do for about how does this impinge potentially on rights and liberties of individual citizens? Nobody wants that. We just skipped right over that question. Right. Even if there's a you can make an argument that we have trade offs in this regard. That's why, we, you know, Typhoid Mary was locked up against her will for that reason. We do have case law that shows when this when when we've negotiated the rights versus the responsibilities. But that conversation isn't even happening. We've skipped straight ahead to the Washington Post praising the Biden administration's HHS for developing this thing. Like, oh, isn't this great? We're going to create this thing that allows, you know, for what I think Noah is correct to call a two-tier society. And that is what concerns me, is that you actually need to have the discussion about civil liberties and rights before you start implementing and developing technologies that would uh, enforce them. Because um, we, we always get it backwards, because what's going to happen is if they implement this, if businesses start requiring it, Lawsuits will multiply as they should because we didn't have this discussion about rights and liberties and trade offs. Uh, okay, I, I don't care. <laughs> I so totally don't okay, care but about you this. You guys have the vaccine. Because... I, I can't get the vaccine. No, but that, in DC well, that's okay. You know, let's talk that's about frustrating. that. First of all, it's too early. Right. It is too early to implement this system. It is not fair to implement a system like this until the vaccine is readily available to everybody who can get it. Right. 
right? So uh, the New York system, the Excelsior passport, which I went on this weekend to try to uh, register into as a, as a twice vaccinated person. And it turns out I can't get it yet because you need to be two weeks out from having gotten the second vaccine to get your Excelsior passport. So that the full benefit of the, of the vaccine is, you know, coursing through your system. So that for me is tomorrow and I will go on and register for it. It is not just and not appropriate for this to be the case until the moment at which everyone in the country is, 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 um, uh, is eligible to, to get the vaccine. Once that happens, yes, go ahead. I just have to interrupt briefly to point out why on earth they called it Excelsior. Excelsior means of superior quality. Like why would they name it that? (laughs) That is the, that is the motto of New York state just to, Okay, That's but why. still, like the, the average, I didn't know that. But the average person hears that. It's like, yeah. oh, so the superior people now have their badge to go do what they want. That is correct. Sorry, we are the superior people, <laughs> particularly if we have the Pfizer vaccine. I just want to say that those of us with the Pfizer vaccine know that everybody else who has Moderna, they suck, and we're <laughs> Pfizer. There's a whole, there are many tiers in society. Because Pfizer rules and Moderna sucks. That's all I'm saying. Even my p- parents got Moderna. I don't care. They are, as far as I'm concerned, they're on the wrong team. They 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 are the Belichick of of the virus, and we're like the John Madden. Anyway, sorry, I this is where you. things are going. By the way, is like is like these relative um, determinations about oh my 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 vaccine has ninety three percent efficacy, whereas yours only has 79% efficacy. Anyway, um, when I say I don't care, what I mean is that assume what I'm saying, which is that there's the point at which everybody over the age of 16 uh, is eligible for for the vaccine. And we have reached the point at which all that there is a surplus of vaccine and not a shortage. Um, at that point, I don't know what suasion we have to deal with the people who are vaccine hesitant, as we are now apparently obliged to call them as opposed to sort of anti-vax hysterics who are psychotic. I mean, I, I, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. It's a, it's of no consequence to me. They can all be insulted. Um, if we are in a rush to get people vaccinated so that the variants don't, so that people have protection, so the variants don't spread and then um, make m- more people who aren't vaccinated sick faster, um, what incentive is there to push the vaccine hesitant into the category of people who acknowledge that they really have to do this, even if they're a little scared of it or whatever, they don't like needles, which I'm guessing is a much larger factor in this than people realize. I mean, people, there are people, you know, we know this from kids and all this, but there are people I think who go through their lives remaining in a state of absolute pitch terror of needles and that this is why they're hesitant, that maybe if it was on a sugar cube like the polio vaccine, they would feel a lot different. It doesn't even matter to me. Like, this is a this is a massive public health concern. We do have civil liberties in the country, so you cannot mandate, you cannot write a law that says that everybody has to get vaccinated. We don't have that kind of country and that kind of system. However, if you can create something like a vaccine passport that then others can do with as they will, including your employer, it's like, okay, you don't want to get vaccine. You don't want to prove to me that you have the vaccine. Fine. That's your, your right. You can't come back to work for me. Um, in the 1990s, when drug testing got very popular, if you worked for a company that drug tested you or had random drug testing, 
uh, I think the general thought was, well, random drug testing could be a civil liberties violation, but you don't have an you don't have an unambiguous right to work for a company. Uh, there, you have no civil right uh, in a in a in a matter of private contract uh, in that way, and so they could say you have to take a drug test. You're like, I'm not going to take a drug test, and they're fine. Okay, so you've got to go find someplace else to work. But can I point out a difference? That there, that wasn't a state-run digital um, uh, drug drug test system and database. Um, well, I mean, the only question is then how do you? So the the Excelsior passport system, as far as I can tell did this. You put in your, your name and your age, and then it asks you, it asks you a couple of questions that are designed to identify that you are who you say you are. It says, on what date were you vaccinated? And it lists four dates around the same time. So you pick one, which is the one that you were vaccinated on. And then it asks you what county you were in when you got vaccinated and you pick the county. Um, and then it looks your name up and your mm-hmm. birth date up, and then it said that it knows that it's you. And in my case, it said you're not, you haven't been vaccinated, you, have, you know, you're not ready yet. You have to come back after two weeks or something like that. So um, the the effort, I don't think it's just that you go on and say you were vaccinated and then you you, you get done. It, yeah, it's a state database, but it, the whole question that it collects information on you, how else is it going to be done? The vaccinations, I don't know how it's going to work for the pharmacies, right? The pharmacies are all private, uh, Walgreens and CVS, which in New York State have only just in the last two weeks gotten up and running as as vaccine, uh, you know, d- distribution points or something like that. But how, how else is it going to be done? Who else, well, who else could maintain a, 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 you know, a sort of a, a database of that size? Well, there is a, a couple things. One, in cities like mine, D.C., which is, is doing vaccination as a kind of equity issue, meaning that if you live in certain wards in the city that are majority white, you're last on the list. In fact, some days you're not even allowed to book an appointment. As long as that continues, there are going to be pockets of cities that are you know, doing it wrong with vaccination, like my city is, where people can't get a vaccine. And as long as there's a single person in your, in your jurisdiction that can't get the vaccine because you can't figure out how to distribute it to your citizens, they can't have any sort of pass system. And that's going to, so I think it's going to take a lot longer just to get to that point than, than even this summer. Even when there's tons of vaccine available, they can't figure out how to get it into people's, uh, into the distribution centers and set up appointments literally they cannot figure it out here in dc it's it's astonishing but the other thing i'll point out is that yeah a private employer can say to his or her employees if you don't ha- get your vaccine you can't come back to work but what are you going to do about the public sector unions what are you going to do about teachers who are many of whom have already refused to get vaccinated and return to work they negotiate contracts as as public employees that have different um different things baked into their contracts that might allow them to say, well, I don't have to get vaccinated and I don't have to go back to work either. Like they are trying already doing okay. this. We know this. Right. But that is where the rubber meets the road. That's a, that's a whole separate, you're now dealing with an entirely separate issue, which is, uh, and particular, these stories that we have now heard that, uh, that the teachers in Fairfax County and the teachers in San Francisco have already announced that they will not, if they, if they have anything to say about it, they're not going to go back to work in September. So I think at that point, when the, when when vaccines are readily available, and when probably everybody over sixteen at that point will be available to have the vaccine, and for all we know, it will be approved uh, for for children under sixteen. Um, if at that point they refuse to go back to work, 
that's when we have we are going to have a hundred patco situations we are going to have a hundred public sector unions that are that are striking or doing work stoppages or something like that that i am sure i haven't read the language of these contracts but that void the contract and the question is what are these cities going to do when they have public sector workers who are in violation of their contract whose behavior is systematically denying what we take in the United States to be a universal civil right which is an edu- which is public education which is according to federal law required to be accessible to all and are they going to be allowed to continue with this simply because they have political power and that's a whole that's where we start getting into an interesting category where you can then say these vaccine passports are really important because that is the modality that is going to be used to to ensure that this population that has decided that they have an aristocratic right of refusal to participate in the in the labor of the world in which they live while getting full benefit of not only their union contract but of all the benefits of society where uh, they are going to be faced down and shot down. And I, I, you know, so in that sense, you are creating a base condition here. Let me just ask you this, because, uh, you know, we, we require children uh, in a lot of places, children are required to be vaccinated uh, to go to public schools. They have to be vaccinated. Right. And you can not vaccinate them, but then they can't go to school. They have to be homeschooled or I don't don't know, however it works. So we have that rule because children do not have full civil liberties. They are not considered fully active, you know, people with full civil rights. And and, and, and things can be imposed on children that cannot be imposed on self-governing adults who are voters and and all of that. Vaccine hesitancy has two or three forms, right? One of which, as I say again, is probably based in fear of needles, which is probably not an insubstantial number of people who probably have this like just gut fear of needles, you know, 10% of the population, who knows what what the number is. Uh, Then you have people who are like, I don't want to stick things in my body. I don't don't trust you people and who knows what's going on. And, you know, I've been seeing these commercials about how people get you sick and I don't want to do that. And then you have the anti-vaxxer movement. And the anti-vaxxer movement, if you'll recall, did not exist until the 1990s. And um, and it, uh, uh, it must be destroyed. Uh, because terrible things are happening as a result of the anti-vaxxer movement, as far as I can tell. Terrible things. This guy, Andrew Wakefield, this doctor in Britain, who announced uh, on the basis of fabricated research that vaccines caused autism, may be one of the great mass murderers in, in world history. I mean, you know, he's been, he, he lost his medical license. He's, you know, he's a disgraced figure <clears throat> in the medical community, but he effectively... Uh, accelerated this idea that the that the very things that cure that that have made twenty first twentieth and twenty first century life possible uh, that eliminated mass childhood deaths that did all kinds of things that are you know beyond belief uh, you know is a is a, is a terrible evil and so in that sense if the if the 
if the vaccine passport that uh, we're not the only country that's going to do, I think probably every country in the world is going to end up uh, adopting some version of it, uh, could have this larger social benefit of, of um, breaking the back of the anti-vax movement. I noticed today, just let me finish this rant. I noticed today or last night that there is a there's a there's a, a writer sort of a I don't know evangelical but a popular evangelical writer uh, named Eric Metaxas whom I know some wrote a biography of Derek Bonhoeffer uh, you know has a radio talk show he's a big Trumper <clears throat> you know he punched somebody at a at a rally uh, I know him he's kind of a nice guy he was an actor he became a became a very religious Christian he ran a group in New York called Socrates in the City which was a kind of discussion forum for serious philosophical ideas. And um, he went on Twitter yesterday. He's got 250,000 followers. And he said, pro tip, don't take the vaccine. Now, why is Eric Metaxas, who is not a doctor, who is a, you know, was like a popular biographer. Why is he an anti-vaxxer? What, what, what is, what is going? So you have this weird category of people who are now turning on the vaccine. It somehow connects with Trump and 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 uh, QAnon and I I don't know whatever okay, but this, else. But, but is this going is on. where the vaccine passport as a federal requirement actually dry, will create more of those people. That's and what I was think say. of it this way: Yeah, it's it's if you federalize this, and then it starts to become a requirement that private businesses and entities use to to weed out people from coming and and uh, participating in commerce activities and employment. You also have the the danger that the federal government, this is a very real danger. It's happened over and over again when it comes to federal level databases. Look at the old crime database, CODIS, the original DNA database that the federal government ran. It was very strictly told to everyone, this is only going to be for people who've been convicted. We're going to put their DNA in this database so that if they're released and they reoffend, we'll have all this. Now, all the state level databases that feed into CODIS, many, many states and more and more each passing year are including the DNA that's taken from people who are under arrest. You don't even have to be convicted and you're, you get your cheek swab. It goes into this federal database. It has expanded because it's proven powerful for the federal government. Now, you can argue that the law enforcement need and the ability to solve cold cases make all that justifiable. But you have to have that argument. And this is happening. The same thing could happen where you start with a vaccine passport and then suddenly, oh, wow, well, our healthcare system could really benefit from everybody having all this stuff digitized on their smartphone. So when they come to their doctor, we have their Medicaid information. We have everything right here. And for some people, myself included, I don't want to see the federal government having that kind of information and power about ordinary citizens. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I agree that far from breaking the back of the anti-vaxxer movement, I think it it could embolden it because part of the anti-vax argument, forgetting the um, the, the um, pseudoscientific claims about uh, how disease spread, um, but in this particular case, when it comes to COVID, is that this isn't about stopping the pandemic. This is about tracking you. Um, this is this is why you shouldn't get the vaccine. This is all about getting you in their system and tracking you, um, which this uh, uh, a passport would indeed um, lend credence to. Um, the other point is that every sort of um, new imposed condition around the pandemic that we had hoped would be short-lived like school closures and whatever else has extended and morphed and um, been used to advance some sort of uh, ideological agenda. And I don't see why this would be any different. 
Okay, so let's just put it this way. I am not saying that the federal government can or should or will be able to mandate that everybody has this federal passport. Um, Just as the federal government can't mandate that everybody buy car insurance. However, if you want a driver's license in many states, you have to, or all states or something, you have to have car insurance because the idea is you don't have an unlimited right to drive a car. There's no constitutional right to drive a car. If what is needed is some proof of vaccination and the card that you're getting, and the, the problem also is you get this card from the CDC. If you're me, I got one. I mean, I, I you know, it's a card and they fill it out. They put your number on it. They put the number of the vial uh, that you got your dose your two doses out of and it's on this card and the card is is a is a disaster like they screwed up the card it's too big for the wallet it doesn't fit in your wallet it's on cardboard so but if you if you laminate it so that it's more permanent um it it won't fit in your wallet so if you're if you're a man i mean you know and so what are you supposed to do with this thing it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense and it's in pen and you could there's no indication that it's you and all that. You could just have stolen one off a desk and filled it out in some fashion. And so uh, you don't have an unlimited right to get on a plane, right? You don't have, there's, you, there's, you have no civil right to get on a plane. You have no civil right to do all kinds of things. How will there be uh, comfort in the world of vaccination unless there is some system where you can demonstrate in some fashion that you have been vaccinated. And that's where that's again. So in the name of, uh, in the name of civil liberties to deny people the right to have some independent third party system that says that they've been vaccinated and therefore can, I don't know, go to a theater, you know, go, go see a show on Broadway when Broadway opens or something like that. How's this going to be? It's going to be an honor system. We're going to have an honor system in the United States where everybody just says they were vaccinated, including the, you know, including the garbage people who refuse to get vaccinated for whatever garbage reason they have to refuse to get vaccinated. And it is a garbage reason. And I'm not going to be nice about it. Vaccine hesitancy is garbage. Uh, you know, suck it up and get the shot because I did. And that you think it wasn't pleasant to get it in my upper arm. It hurt a little bit. So what? You know, you do a lot of things that are unpleasant, uh, you know, just to like get through life, including, you know, like getting your oil changed, you know, and waiting in the waiting room. I don't care. Anyway. So that's my rant. So answer me. So, so you're saying this is terrible. They're going to, it's the camels and those in the tent. They're going to have all our database information on a database and it's horrible. Well, the, What's the alternative? The alternative is actually the one you mentioned earlier. And it's the one where, uh, what schools require parents to do to have their kids enroll. It requires you as a parent to go to your child's pediatrician and the the pediatrician fills out a form which shows all the vaccinations that your kid has had which you then uh which is which is actually a a school issued form each school issues its own form you take it to the doctor the doctor fills it out usually when they're doing their annual physical and then you submit it back to the school and the school has a record of it 
What I like about that, although it, it's a lot more bureaucratic and there's in some ways more paperwork, is that it's a, it's a, the individual is going to one's private physician and then to the institution, which is requiring documentation. And it's a closed circle, right? Now, if you leak because of HIPAA protections, if the school leaks my kids' information, it's medical information, they will get in trouble for that. And I'm sure there would be HIPAA protections that go on this database, but like Abe, I share concerns about database being hacked. We just had our Department of Homeland Security databases hacked. I mean, these are the federal government's uh, digital infrastructure is not safe and has not been safe for a very long time. So there's the safety concern, the privacy concern. But for me, it's also the goalpost shifting concern, not because I don't think people should get vaccinated. Everyone should get vaccinated, but it, it, it is removing the burden of persuading the people who are least likely to get vaccinated and making it a punitive reaction to that. We know from anti-vaxxers that sitting down and talking to a doctor who listens to their concerns and explains to them why vaccination is important can change minds. A one-on-one conversation with someone who listens and persuades is very useful. We know this from research. That same conversation might need to happen millions of times with the COVID vaccination. That's not a, it's a messier human solution than the kind of top-down digital passport thing that the federal government is proposing. So those are the two concerns I have mainly with this particular system. I, I have another alternative also, which is that, which is understanding that when, when, as more and more people get vaccinated, which they are and which they will do, um, the numbers of infections in the country will drop dramatically to the point where something like having to show a passport that you, that you got vaccinated won't really be applicable. I mean, it's all, it, we're, we're all, it's already the case that if you, that if you are in, you know, what the New York Times calls like a, a, a high, I don't even, I don't even remember their term terminology for like a high risk of an extremely high risk area. High risk area. Yeah. Your odds are, you know, like, you know, one in a thousand or more or a hundred. I don't even remember. So something, something really safe, um, of getting, of getting the, the, the virus. Certainly with the, the penetration of the vaccine throughout the society, I don't think we have, I don't think it's realistic to act as if we are living in this, we will be living in this um, dystopia where uh, disease is everywhere you turn and you, and you have to show ID to, to prove that you're not passing it on. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of the vaccine. It's, it's, it's going to bring this thing to its knees. Right. But there is a period between when the vaccines are administered and when we, when there is a common understanding that we've achieved herb, herd immunity, where we're going to be in this kind of nether area. And so you maybe have the war of the neuroses. And the question is, which neurosis gets to win? Is it the neurosis that says, I need you to prove to me that you don't have the virus so that uh, you, uh, you know, we can all go out and go to a restaurant? Or is it, I'm worried that this vaccine is going to grow me a third head, so I don't want to take the vaccine. So in, th- in that sense, uh, you are essentially going to have to pick and choose between which your preferred neurosis is, uh, you know, and w- which irrational fear of, you know, of the outside world and the, and the, and the good common functioning of everyday life uh, is the one that gets purchase or has or has the has the upper hand. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. I take all of your points uh, readily, uh, but you know we are in a situation in which um, we are. Uh, 
no, something like this has never happened before. We have 330 million people in this country. 265 million of them uh, are over the age of 18, will therefore be eligible to receive the virus. And uh, the 30% of people, uh, vaccine, and 30% of people have now been vaccinated at least once. Uh, so we are, we are getting there faster than anybody thought we were going to. The question is when we hit say 50%, are we going to stall and, and what happens when, when we stall? And so the idea of, of creating, there are two ways you look at a vaccine passport, by the way, one is that it's punitive. The other is it's the opposite. Uh, if you have a vaccine passport, maybe you get ten percent off at your local bar. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like there there are those things. Donuts you can do. for life. Show your yeah. <laughs> yeah, show your Excelsior passport, and you'll you know you can drink here for three hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, or you know whatever. Um, because there has gonna there may be a point at which we need to get people over the hump to get you know another ten or fifteen percent vaccinated, so we achieve herd immunity in good 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 order and good time. And I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that is. But, that, um, but, but just one quick thing on that, ironically, bringing us back to some of the law enforcement stuff we were talking about earlier in the show, you are that is that is imposing on private individuals in this country a policing function that really isn't there. Like, so you're the business owner and you have to police people and you know demand to see their passport. And no, demand- no, I'm saying you give them an incentive to come back into the into your bar. I mean, sure, the other way, you know, again, that same free, thing. Yeah. No, no. After 9-11, every office building had to, you had to show an ID, right? Right. What was that about? Like that. And again, it's like, you don't have a, you don't have a universal right to go into an office building. So you show your ID. Was that, was that the, you know, was that the The only only place Democrats don't want you to show an ID is at the polls. Like there it's right. right. (laughs) Well, we can get it. We can get into that tomorrow. (laughs) Actually, we should maybe talk about the Georgia, the, the psychosis, the psychotic talk about the Georgia law. And we are, I think, probably we have now um, taxed your patience long enough. So we will, we will uh, table this conversation and return to it for uh, for Abe and Christine and the absent Noah Rothman. I'm John Podhoretz. Keep the camera burning.